This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Lance Esplund, who is a writer, teacher, author, regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, art critic, and author of this book, The Art of Looking, How to Read Modern and Contemporary Art. Welcome, Lance. Thank you for having me, Greg. This book is subtitled How to Read Modern and Contemporary Art, but I think that the book is broader than that. It's really about how to read art full stop because you describe what it means to be, I guess, a consumer of art. And I guess we'll have to talk about that, but we'll also talk, you know, what makes contemporary art different and what is it about the role of the critic? Does modern art, contemporary art, require a greater contribution on the part of critics. Do people need more help when it comes to reading modern and contemporary art than art from previous periods? I don't think they really do. In fact, interestingly enough, I wanted to write this book for a while, but when it finally came to fruition, they wanted it to focus on modern and contemporary art, but I never teach that way and I never think of art that way. Artists don't think of art as existing on a timeline. Either it's alive and present or it isn't. It's either always dead or always alive. And I think that generally the people who believe that they need more hand-holding with contemporary art probably need just as much hand-holding with Rembrandt, but they just don't know it. I think that, granted, a lot has happened in the last 100, 200 years that has shifted what art can be, what art is understood to be, how you might interpret it, There's a lot of insider jokes. There's all kinds of responses and toying with the public and toying with academies. And there are things definitely that can be discussed about contemporary art that weren't necessary to discuss 500 years ago. But in the end, the basic language of art, which is what you were alluding to in terms of it's really about looking at all art full stop, 
that's what I'm trying to do is to open up people to that greater language that's universal and consistent throughout all art of, from any period or any culture. Well, you know, you talk a bit about how some people have an immediate reaction to art when they see it. The art can trigger something and then maybe it starts to mirror something. But your point is that in order for you to really get the most out of art, you have to give it time. You have to let it open up. And presumably you have to bring something more to the table than just your immediate subjective response. You referenced the art of looking. How much does looking and understanding art require practice, require experience, and require cumulative knowledge? I think it's a lifelong pursuit and relationship, just like any relationship. I'm still learning every day, and I have my prejudices challenged constantly. So I'm not really unlike any other viewer who would come into a museum. I come in with my own objectivity and subjectivity and my own understanding. And I certainly have a deep understanding of the language of art. And I was a practicing painter and taught painting. So I have a real connection to it. But I think that the only way to learn the language is to engage on a passionate level and to have a kind of childlike curiosity in front of actual works in the flesh. And that's really the only way to begin and the only way to end is with the thing itself. I don't know if that's getting to... We're going to unravel this, basically. It's a very complex subject, and I think art is a, especially the fundamentals of art, which I really try to stress in teaching and also in my book, at least to introduce people to the fundamentals, is that they have to first accept that there is a language there, that there are things that they can understand about spatial shifts, for instance, in art, and how complicated and complex that is when light's achieved through color, when an artist has control of his or her media and can do with it and orchestrate it at the highest poetic level. And I think that too often, especially since the camera was invented, people think of, the, of art as being mimetic instead of poetic. It never was that, and it never will be. Obviously, there are people who do that kind of thing, and they don't know any better, but or that's their end game, is to make it just look like something or look like a photograph. But my 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 objective with the book on some level was to empower people to start thinking like artists and to try to look at art and to engage with it in a way that unlocks the poetry or where they can start to feel their way through it and see what an artist is trying to communicate at a very precise level. And it's one doorway opens another doorway opens another doorway to get at the metaphors in, say, a great work of painting or sculpture or architecture or whatever it is. But just the first step, obviously, is just to accepting that it is a language that needs to be learned and that it's not just about what you like or don't like and then let it go at that. And certainly you can go through life that way if you want. It's really about understanding why and what are you getting from the work and what is the artist trying to communicate to you and how well is that actually being communicated? So it's embracing those ideas. Yeah, I love this quote from Ernst Gombrich that you quote in the book where he says, there's no wrong reason for liking a work of art, but there's plenty of wrong reasons for not liking a work of art. A lot of people, when they're talking about art of any kind, they'll say, yeah, I liked it. And then someone says, oh, I didn't like it. And then they move on <laughs> to the next part of the conversation. And it doesn't seem like a conversation that's likely to result in much growth. So if we like it, shouldn't that inspire some curiosity as to why we like it? And then if we don't like it, shouldn't that inspire some curiosity to maybe try and figure out ways that we can 
start exactly. to like it? Is the liking informative? Does it begin the process of curiosity? You're hitting on, on exactly the right point, which is that you have to trust yourself and your feelings and your responses. And if you don't, if you come in with an attitude that either you can't trust yourself or you shouldn't trust yourself or you should only trust yourself um, without taking in anything outside of yourself, then you're up against a wall. So yes, you have to be at the highest level, fully subjectively engaged in the experience and at the highest level, fully objectively engaged in the experience so that it takes a level of rationality that you would use, say, if you're doing a math problem or trying to navigate your car through a street and at the same time, or to understand the world so that not to run over a pedestrian, blah, 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 but, or two and two equals four. But it also takes the highest level of subjective experience. And Greenberg, another person I quote in that same passage or near that with the Gombrich, is that one of the things he says is that you need the highest level of subjectivity and objectivity because then you get to a place where you can almost become a kind of every person where you get to a level of objectivity where you're seeing exactly the rational experience, you're having that rational experience, but you can't get there without bringing the subjectivity to begin with. And if you don't want to stand in front of the work of art, I mean, you give it some time, but at a certain point, if you don't like it, move on. It's not a test if you're not in trouble for not liking something. But there's plenty of great work out there that can act as an entryway to all art. All it takes is one great work of art and once you pass through that doorway, just as you would with one poem, one song, one love affair, one great meal, one great bottle of wine, whatever it is, then you're open to the entire world of, be it music or art or poetry or love or food. or So, so it's really just don't beat yourself over the head for the fact that you don't like something. But start with something that you do like. Go to something like a Rembrandt, say, if you like it. Or maybe the colors are too dark and you find it like musty and makes you feel like you need to take a bath. I don't know. Rembrandt might not be your thing. Maybe it's something else. But as long as you can enter into it, then you've entered into the entire language and dialogue of all art from all eras. And that's the, that's the thing that I would stress. Don't work too hard. But eventually, yes, you're going to have to work really hard to get in. To get deep in. Yes, you can get in. in any, you can enter a swimming pool from any place. You can dive in. You can walk in. You can go down the ladder. You can go down the stairs, whatever. You could be in the shallow end, the deep end. It doesn't matter. Once you're in the pool, you're in the pool. And once you get wet, then you're experiencing the experience. So great art gives you infinite ways to enter. And one was made just for you, specifically, if it's a great work. You'll, it'll find, it can give you an entry point that works just for you. And I think that's one of the great things. It's a very personal, but also universal kind of experience. Yeah. So it seems like people who simply say, I like, don't like, don't like, they're missing something important. But so too are the people who are sort of, you know, affectless and completely intellectual with respect to their analysis of art. So can art be a purely intellectual exercise? I mean, some people would say that's the that's a deficiency of contemporary art, is that it's too intellectualized. Can it be great art if it doesn't have the capacity to move one in a powerful emotional way, spiritual way, and physical way? I think you even said that at one point that great art is a full-body experience. Yes. 
I believe that some paintings make your heart skip a beat or they or some sculptures, whatever. Some music does that, too, where you feel it before you have any thoughts about it whatsoever. I certainly believe in analyzing works of art at the highest level. But I don't and I don't see it as an exercise. I see it as a as another way through and into what it's telling me to understand that reflection is part of the experience. What is the larger not message, because I don't believe art has messages, but what questions does it ask? Where does it take me? Your point about the difference between contemporary and older art, I think it's really about a sense of approach. I mean, I've had bad art history teachers who only talk about the symbols in works of art and never talk about um, the poetry or the serenity or the sublime light or all the mystery about art, which, of course, is one of the aspects and a mystery, you can never unfold that. You can never really get at the mystery, but that's part of the power of it is that you keep going deeper into that. Some work, some contemporary work especially, maybe doesn't have mystery, or maybe it's there just to niggle you or to trip you up or to get you to question something. It might be working on only one cylinder. It's not a question of whether or not it's art per se, but how deep a level of art is it. So art can have many different functions. Duchamp's fountain, his the urinal that he signed and put up, put on its side, on its back, on a pedestal in 1917 that I mentioned in the book, that had a specific purpose beyond, was kind of held to the idea that he really wanted to upset the apple cart. And he certainly did with that work. Did he mean it to be a great work of sculpture in the way that a Bernini is a great work of sculpture? No, not at all. And he didn't have the abilities as an artist even to do that. So he did something else. So it's really about getting at what is the artist's intent. And once you get to the at least the full level of what the artist's intent is, if you unravel that and there's no more, if you spent the time there objectively and subjectively with it, and you get to a point where there's nothing else to see here, might as well move on then yes, that can happen. I think the problem is often we close down too quickly in front of works of art and only get to get through two doorways when there's an infinite number of doorways through which you could go. Now, you talked about this experience you had when you were young, when you encountered a work by Paul Clay, and you said this was the first work of art that really impacted you. Why did this particular work open doors for you and set you on this path? I mean, I could go into my own personal history to some degree, but not long before I saw that painting, I'd gone through a very serious breakup that had really thrown me emotionally and sent me into a deep depression. And I think that, you know, there are other things going on in my own life, relatively speaking, in terms of what I was interested in, what I was attracted to. I didn't really respond to Rembrandt or Leonardo or all of these artists I was studying in in my art history classes the art historians were making them dry and dull and symbolic and identify all the saints. And it was a lot of memorization and a lot of rote, dry, fall asleep in your chair in the dark room kind of art history. And and I didn't really know that art could be like Paul Clay. I'd always, I worked with children ever since I was very young. I grew up in a daycare center. My mother had one. I was always interested in children's art and I collected it. And I knew about Paul Clay, but I didn't know about the range of clay, and I'd never seen a a clay in the flesh. So I was attracted to him. But when I saw the painting in the flesh 
And I experienced the light in it, which I said in the book, I described it to a friend of mine as like an eye massage. I spent the entire afternoon with that one painting and no work of art had helped me that way. And I think I was drawn to my love of animals in it. It's about a dog. It's about so many things, but it's basically a dog howling at the moon. And it's an abstract painting. But I, because I was so in, enticed by or seduced by the color in it, which was so weird to me because it was icy and soothing at the same time, because I spent time and I thought it was funny and humorous, and I didn't know it was like a child's painting. I didn't know art could be so great, but also refer to childhood, which was one of the things that he did. He often worked with childlike painting. That was another metaphor that he did. He also worked in manuscripts and all kinds of, made things that looked like Egyptian art. Nothing was beyond his grasp or reach. And so I think in standing with that painting and spending that amount of time with it, which was probably two or three hours, I was able to finally understand for the first time how line can be muscular and have an arabesque and move through space and move in and out of the plane of the painting. And I, for the first time, I really had an understanding or a deeper understanding of what space was in a painting, how it could be held flat and it could be malleable or elastic and that a painting could be fun and also have great light in it. And it could be about a subject that like dogs, <laughs> I loved animals. So like that it could be all of these things simultaneously and pull on all of these different ideas. And so for me, it was an entryway into kind of, in terms of the idea of the depression that I had, it was something that opened up to me this deep level of experience through art that I think if you've had a deep level of experience, whether it's love or depression or loneliness or all these things that we all feel, when art touches at that level of a deep experience, psychologically, emotionally, and you understand it physically in terms of its formal properties and how it's getting you there. I think, and I don't know if you're following me, but that there's a merging that takes place where you're taken into another realm. You go through this passageway that's open to everybody and that is the realm of art, this realm of play, of metaphoric analogy and of interacting with the thing, relating to it. That opened me up to everything else. I no longer cared what my art historian said. I just went and looked at paintings and sculptures then, because I'd had my own way in. I didn't need them any longer. I mean, I, of course, I had to go to class, but I realized that they, they were making art dead for me, whereas the work itself was making it alive. Mm -hmm. That sort of implies that it's almost like a Protestant view of art, right? You don't need the priests to explain how to experience it. But th there is a role, right, for the priests and the critics. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a job. But I was just bemoaning with a colleague who is art historian, the way in which we teach art history, which as you mentioned, is just, we're just rattling off dates and facts and figures. Why do we still do that? Isn't there, there's got to be, if the goal is to teach people how to look, that certainly doesn't help. Yeah, that was not the way I taught art history and I taught it for 20 years. I mostly, you know, I would show a contemporary work or a modern work next to an ancient work and show how they were in dialogue with one another, because really that's what art is. Art's in dialogue with art. It doesn't care when it was made or, or who made it or cares nothing about that. It only cares about itself. And so for me, it's about the rhythms, the music, the emotional qualities, the light, the metaphor. And I'm very interested in how a work of art opens metaphorically. I think for me, the most important experience, and this is not something that most people will do, but it's certainly something that is an age-old practice and that I learned as a student is to draw from art 
literally draw from it with a pencil and paper and try to go through the same moves that the artist did and try to understand it. And then when you start trying to piece all of this complexity together, like if you're analyzing a piece of music, if you want to compose music or if you want to compose as, a, as an artist you start to get at what that artist was doing. And I think for me, that was that I have my students do that because it, it humbles you to no end. And it also makes you realize that when there are, you know, it's not just a lady and a man on a bed or whatever, riding a horse. There are all kinds of, of inconsistencies and impossibilities going on about where the legs are and whose leg is whose and where the figures are in relationship to one another and how they're united or tied together or whatever. So that you get you start to get at these metaphoric ideas that have nothing to do with the way the world looks. It's about the world of the artwork, not the world of the outside world, because art is completely separate from that. You know, it's a completely separate thing. I do think you need critics to a degree if they're good. You know, if they're going to try to help open the work up to you. <laughs> And I think there are great art historians, too. I'm not knocking art history as a profession or art historians. I have learned very much from great art historians. That's not the point. I do think, though, that having some kind of something beyond theory about it is important. And a lot of the art historians I had didn't really had no no actual experience, no empirical knowledge of what it meant to compose a work. It doesn't mean they didn't have understanding, but their understanding was different from what an artist understands. So yes, in the end, you go to the work. The artwork is what's going to teach you. I often lament how bad art is today, but as long as there's a Titian to be seen in the Ferrari Chapel of the Assumption of the Virgin, and artists have access to that, they can learn from Titian how to be an artist. They don't need anyone else. As long as there are Paul Clay's on the wall, they can learn how to be an artist or Bernini Fountains or whatever else there is, or as long as the pyramids are there. You don't need all the middle people. The art is the teacher. So you talk about developing aesthetic judgment. You need this in order to get the most out of art, but the way in which you do it is by exposing yourself to art. Can we view the critics or the art historians in some ways as coaches? If it's really a skill that we're developing, a way of seeing, then we need coaches to develop our athletic prowess. Coaches could presumably help us with our aesthetic judgment, right? When I think of people teaching art history, I don't think they think of themselves as coaches, but coaches can help, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know if I'd use the metaphor of coach, but it's, it works as well as any other. I think that it's useful, and this is what my best teachers did for me, it's useful to have them ask you the right questions to suggest that you look at this as opposed to this. And one of the things I stress in my book is to resist the urge to name things and resist the urge to identify objects in a work, apple, woman, horse, plant, whatever, but to try to move through that and get at what the forms themselves are what are they analogous to, for instance? Not, is it an apple? Or, okay, so it's an apple, but what else also might it be? And how do you open yourself up to that? And I think that the coaching is important in that sense. I might mean, certainly coach my students when I say to them, what's, I might sort of put up a painting and say, what's wrong with this picture? Meaning, don't just identify all the figures in it, but 
where is there something that seems off or unusual or out of place or odd about it? And if you come at a work of art that way to begin, you might notice immediately that the back wall is in front of the woman's head, which can't happen. But if you look at this side of her head, maybe the back wall is all the way up here and she's embedded in it. Whereas over here, maybe it's completely open. And then the question would be, why is the artist? So if this is coaching, then yes. Why would the artist do that? Is it because the artist is deficient? Is it because the artist is a bad painter and can't put the head in front of the wall as he knows it is? Or is there a more poetic reason for that? So it, those are the kinds of coaching questions or prodding that, that I would do and that I think that we all need to do when we come to works of art, not just identify Orpheus and Eurydice and then move on, but to see how are they relating to each other. And to ask that question, what is weird about this, I think is a very good place to start in front of any work of art as a baseline. You made a claim, which I think is similar to what I learned from my art history professors, which is to learn how to think like an artist when you're looking at a work of art. And I think part of what that means is to start from the assumption that every aspect of what you are experiencing was intentional. If it's a color, why is it that color? If it's a shape, why is it a shape? If it's located in this place, why is it located in this place? Mm -hmm. And if you start from that assumption that it's intentional, then you have to reverse engineer what it's doing to you or you know, what it's intended to do to you. That's a very good point, but it, because it, we don't question intention elsewhere. We don't look at an automobile and say, why is that bumper there? That was a mistake. Oh, it just happened to be left over. And we don't look at poetry in that way either. We make a decision that every syllable, every letter, every piece of punctuation is there for a very specific reason. And I think that art gets short shrifted that way. It's treated as if, oh, the artist didn't intend that to happen. And certainly the unconscious plays a part here. And I think that I often use the analogy with my students that because they always say, oh, he can't have intended everything that he did. If you leave it in, if the painter, if the artist leaves it there in the end, then yes, he's signing off on it. No matter how it got there, whether he threw a confetti up in the air and then it landed on the page or whether there was painstaking, finicky kind of detailed finesse going on throughout the entire process. But one of the things that I point out to my students is when you watch a great basketball player go to the net from all the way across court and do a layup, yes, it was intentional to do the layup, but every move that was done in maneuvering through the players and in the spinning and everything else, and that's, that's intuitive through a lifetime of for that player of having practiced that particular sport. So there's muscle memory and intuition and subconscious stuff going on in art that is as important to the experience of the creation that a regular person who's never tried to do a drawing has no understanding about any way than an Olympic diver would understand about what an Olympic diver does. And I, these are the things that I think are really important to keep hold of, that, that yes, there's unconscious stuff that happens, and sometimes it responds or it opens up in you unconscious stuff. That's what Freud believed was the whole purpose of art, was to, so that we related on an unconscious level, on a subconscious level, so that it would bring forth this stuff in the artist and then bring this stuff forth stuff, bring forth this stuff in you, the viewer. You mentioned sports. I think 
you have a greater appreciation of a sport if you've actually played the sport. When I go to a basketball game, if I go with my cousin who's played basketball his whole life, it's a very different experience for him. And, and I learn by going with him. And you point out that maybe one way to enhance your aesthetic judgment is to attempt to do a little art yourself. But these things are usually not taught together, right? We have art history departments, art practice departments. I remember when I was in college, I did a minor where I combined the two because it seemed to me like you needed to give it a try <laughs> in order to really understand what you were seeing. Should we be integrating the teaching of these things? I think that the the only way really to teach art history is to have artists, have the students draw from the works in the same way that the artists did. Leonardo drew from Giotto and Rubens drew from Leonardo and Matisse drew from Rubens and Renoir drew, then Matisse drew from Rubens. Anyway, it's all just links in the chain. And yes, I think that practice is the only way really to teach the, the, teach the practice and understand the practice. And I do think part of developing your aesthetic judgment, we use our aesthetic judgment everywhere, whether it's we prefer this taste to that taste or this color to that color. And these are the things that you're doing with art, too. It's just human experience. That's all you're doing is bringing your human experience to it. It doesn't take any other skills than that, but it does take, it does require that you ask the right questions. Is this color, for instance, sour and acidic? Is it cool? Is it warm? Is it hot? Does this color recede or does it advance in relationship to the color next to it? You're bringing your everyday knowledge because we're making judgments all the time about people, places, things, experiences, films, music, food. These are all we all have, these are the only skills it takes to look at art. If your eyes are working, this is all it takes. You just have to ask them the right questions, just as you would if you were a chef or if you were a musician. You know, does it have melody or are the notes are there sour notes? Does it jar your ears? Does it jar your eyes? And you have to think of it as music, I think, really, and how musical is it and what kind of rhythm does it have? You know, Mondrian used to dance in front, well, he painted to boogie woogie music because he expected it to have that kind of rhythm and power. And if it didn't, it wasn't going to be a good painting. These are things people, you know, can you dance to a painting? I think that's a good question to ask. What would this painting, what would its rhythms be? You know, it's about getting more in touch and bringing all these things together instead of trying to see art as this separate thing that exists on a pedestal that we can't understand. It's something we live with. Art has always been something we lived with until recently when the museums happened. And now you had these things taken out of context and they weren't things that we lived with every day. They were suddenly art. This is a new concept, this idea of art. It's a very modern idea, first of all. So it's really just about getting back in touch with our roots. We're in infancy relative to this idea that art is something separate from our daily lives. It's a very recent invention. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you've been saying up till now really applies to all art, but the book is meant to focus on contemporary and modern art. And you do say that one aspect of contemporary modern art that sets it apart is that every modern artist has to have a kind of philosophy or stance about art, or at least has to is forced to think more consciously about a philosophy or a stance on art. What do you mean by that? Do you think that the earlier artists did not, did they not have to, I mean, they were all thinking about their art in context, right? Yes. And I think all artists had a philosophy or a stance, even the ancient Egyptians who for 3000 years had the exact same philosophy and stance as a group in making abstract art that was for the gods. That philosophy and stance was pretty damn important because if they didn't adhere to the rules and do them well, and speak in the language of the gods, then society would fall apart. Literally, the planets would fall from the sky. <laughs> There'd be no afterlife. The world would end. So that's a pretty serious philosophy to have in relationship to something. And whether you're a Roman Catholic painter or a Reformation painter or an expressionist working out of kind of an existential idea, or you're an impressionist working from the ways in which light affects you and nature affects you out in the landscape, all of these things are philosophies. Every artist brings his or her philosophy, his reason for being to the, the work. I think the difference that's happened in contemporary art is that since Duchamp, who wanted to make art more about that, that, you know, his idea, which I don't really buy, but his idea was to make art that stimulated your mind as opposed to your senses, your aesthetic experience, your visual appreciation. There's a sense in, in, in that stance that, that art is of higher level if it stimulates the mind primarily as opposed to is pleasing to the eye. And I think that at that point, there was a rift that happened. And there have been many different divisions that have happened since then. There are many artists working today who have very clear ideas about that their art is to disrupt or to challenge or to dethrone the art of the past. And I think that that's a modern idea uh, or a contemporary idea. I don't necessarily believe in it. There's a revisionist history going on right now that is suggesting that all artists in the modern era wanted to disrupt or shock or dethrone or upend the status quo. And I think the greatest artists didn't. They tr continued the tradition out of which they were working by advancing it and making it contemporary in their time through their philosophical stance and relationship to the world. Philosophy changes. But one of the things I talk about in the book is the movement, the cyclical movement between abstraction and figuration. And that there's a theory that I think is very apt that when society is, feels comfortable in the world, they emulate it through figuration and representation. They create the space in their art that is like the space in the world in which they live. 
when they feel alienated or uncomfortable in the world, then they create art that is abstract, that doesn't, whose space is not the same as ours or reflects our space in the world. And right now, I think we're in a very uncomfortable place since the Industrial Revolution, which is one of the reasons that we've moved back to abstraction. Now, certainly there's as much figuration going on as there is abstraction, but you have now virtual reality art and all kinds of things that are removing us more and more from our physical world. Art and virtual reality is another level of kind of abstraction from this particular society or this place where we are right now because of the space in which it's existing and happening. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 50 years, too, in relationship to this. But philosophies change, and with it, people's modes of expression change. So for something to be considered great art, in your view, does it have to be an experiential element to it? One critique of some works of contemporary art is that you can read about it, read the thesis, and experiencing it doesn't add anything to the validity of the thesis, right? There is art out there that, you know, conceptual art that never needs to be created that can exist in your mind or your mind is a place too, okay? It, even conceptual art takes a form, whether it's a thought is a form in that respect, whether it's, it's physical too in the sense that it's energy or whatever, you know, I don't want to talk out of my field of expertise, but electrical charges in the brain, that's something too. And so there really is no such thing as conceptual art, but there are artists who don't believe that their work needs to be actually physically manifested, that you don't have to make it. That's a stance. Have I seen anything that, or have I seen anything? Have I experienced anything or heard about anything at, that's conceptual that I would put on the level of great? No, nothing. I think that there have been some interesting things done, but this is where we get back to the aesthetic judgment, which the very process of aesthetic judgment is one question, basically, greater than, less than, equal to. And when you've had a great experience with a great work of art, that takes it all the way up here. And that gives you a, a bar that all other art has to... Now, each artist is different. So, you know, who's the better artist, Titian or Mondrian? Well, that's not really the issue because they're both very different. They both have very different philosophies, relatively speaking. They both are doing different things. I think they're both equally great in different ways. But the issue then is where does Duchamp's fountain come up in relationship to that? And for me, it's way, way down here. It's an interesting idea. And as soon as Duchamp's fountain happened, basically that shifted the whole argument into the idea that if an artist says it's art, it doesn't matter what it is. When he bought a snow shovel out of a hardware store and brought it home and hung it up and called it art, that changed the die. That changed it entirely. Now that's, if he says it's art, that's it. So it's not really, the question then becomes not, is it art, but is it good art? How good is it? How does it compare to other art? Now, a lot of people don't believe in these hierarchical distinctions, at least not with art. They would believe it if they slept on a bad bed or heard bad music or had a bad meal that gave them food poisoning or had a car that didn't run or they want their bridges to be structurally sound, but they don't care if their paintings are structurally sound. 
And these things, you're a painting, if you cross a painting, it's not going to kill you if it falls apart, but a bridge will. So the belief here is that some things need to adhere to this hierarchy and some things don't. I think that everything should adhere to some kind of level of aesthetic judgment, experiential judgment, all of these things. A friend of mine who's a painter was going to a her dentist and her dentist collected outsider art, which is art made by people who are outside of the mainstream. They haven't had formal education. It's not folk art per se. It could be, but it's basically art that is considered great, despite the fact that these people made it without any formal formal understanding or teaching. And she asked him once, or he asked her once, the painter, the dentist asked her, what do you think of outsider art? And she, because he said, you know, I collect it. It was in the, in the waiting room. And she said, what do you think of outsider dentistry? And I think that's a question that needs to be asked about any kind of work here. What do you think of outsider engineers, bridge engineers? But, you know, we put the caves of Lascaux in the canon, and that, that's certainly outsider art. I doubt they had any formal training. Well, they did because they created the very art. They created the language that we're, t- that we're speaking now. And interestingly enough, Picasso went into the caves, either in Altamira or Lascaux, I don't know which it was. But when he left, he said to his guide, we've invented nothing new. He was both humbled and also reassured by the fact that the bulls he was painting in his own pictures were exactly doing the exact same things as the bulls that were being painted 40,000 years before. And that's the tradition I'm talking about in terms of the language. They taught themselves, so to speak, but it came out of an essential need to communicate whatever it was that they wanted to communicate, the life and energy and weight and ballast and movement of the bulls, which is the same things that Picasso was interested in. That's the lineage. That's the dialogue that art has, is that Picasso had never seen these bulls before, but he was painting the exact same thing in his own studio. And he was also interested in painting bulls, being from Spain. You know, he was interested in the bullfight. But you look at some of Picasso's bulls, they're just they look like they're they could have been done on the Lascaux caves and vice versa that's the revelation here I think you know they're interested in the same language it is the same language that we're speaking and it begins with metaphor basically not mimetic ideas you know you describe in the book an experience you had with work by Maria Abramovich where Mm -hmm. you it was purely experiential and there's nothing you can own there's no nothing you can hang on the wall uh, but it is nonetheless a work of art. Could you describe that experience? And is that an experience that's different in some way from your experience with clay? Yes, it's a different experience, but then to codify experience and what's useful or if you're judging experience, is the experience of a roller coaster, is that charge, that's a charge just like looking at a Titian painting is a charge, just like Having an orgasm is a charge. All of these experiences, these human experiences, all they can't be separated out and they're all intertwined. And I think that, yes, I certainly got a charge out of looking at clay. I also got a charge, an unexpected charge, out of, out of engaging with the Abramovic performance, which was just to, for your viewers, your readers, or your listeners, whatever, it, you put on noise-canceling headphones and a blindfold, and they didn't exactly work, but then you were put into a bright white room 
so that you couldn't see and you couldn't hear with other people. And then you would move around the room as long as you wanted and you raised your hand when you wanted to leave. But you interacted with other people in the room. I was very skeptical of it going in. And I think that I didn't really believe in the idea of it because I think that the randomness, for one thing, is it's too random. It's more like a psychological experiment. But I had an interesting or I should say a charged experience from it with dancing with a woman in the room who may have been Abramovic herself. I don't know. But she did have long hair like she does. And she was a good dancer. She moved very well. So she and I interacted with each other in the space. And I did have I did have experiences that I couldn't have had in any other particular situation. And I think that in that sense, the artwork, if it provides you with a unique experience that opens you up to yourself and to larger experiences in the world and connects with other ideas, one of the things it did was remind me of an experience that had happened 30 years ago that I had forgotten about being stranded on a subway platform in Brooklyn with where all the lights were off. And it reminded me of moving through that space and kind of being ill at ease. But it also got me in touch with senses that I hadn't had to use before, which was purely physical because I couldn't hear and I couldn't see these things that we rely on. And I think in that respect, art's job is to open those senses up, to open doorways in you that hadn't been opened before. Do I prefer that to a great Matisse painting? No. Do I think it has its place? Certainly. Again, it's about what do I prefer? Well, I'm happy to have had that experience. And, you know, I didn't break an ankle or anything or I got through it safely. You know, I've certainly gotten whiplash from being on a roller coaster. It's a charged experience that has its place. And we should be opened up to, open to all of these experiences, I think. It doesn't mean that you have to go have a, an Abramovic experience in a performance. No. Uh, or that you have to go look at Matisse either. But art runs the whole, it's a wide-ranging set of ideas and possibilities you mentioned that looking at art is an extension of looking at the world. Should we view the success of a work of art as opening up new ways of looking at the world, the non-art world? I remember one of the things that I got out of painting and looking at art is that when I look at non-art, of course, I can't look at it the same. I have to look at it differently. But could art be valuable if it just helps you to understand more art? Does it have to have some external reference or can it simply reference other art? No, I think that art exists for art's sake. Art is only art. And I don't think it has any job to help with social justice or change the world or change or help with climate change or to assist with starving people or to, it has no other purpose other than to be art and to be in dialogue with other art. Now, certainly art doesn't exist without the people who make it and the experience of it. But it is there, and it is meant to just be in relationship to other art. Now, I'm sure I get a lot of, of a lot of people would disagree with me, but I do think that's its main purpose. I think it has no function other than that. Now, I do think that it can certainly open you up to other kinds of experiences in the real world. I will go see a great painter. And then for maybe a day or two afterwards, I might see my experience of the world, especially let's say it's a landscape painter. Then my experience of the landscape, the actual landscape is seen through that artist's eyes. 
my experience of the light is, or my wife and I, my wife's a painter, she and I will talk about sometimes, oh, that's a Poussin sky, or that looks like a Turner sky, or, oh, this is like Corot's light right now, or Courbet. And so there are moments when you realize, because they're, because these artists are getting at a truth about our experience and, of the, and a truth about the world, that when you recognize those truths in the world, you're taken back to those artists. So... Yes. It's, it, can art make you a better person? Not necessarily, and that's not its job. I do think it can certainly make you more open to experience, but that doesn't make you necessarily a better person. You can still be a serial killer and have the greatest appreciation for art that anyone has ever had. It's not going to ch necessarily change you, and that's not its purpose. It exists fully to be itself, to exist in the realm of art. We were talking before we started about the number of museums that we have in the United States. We have an incredible amount of museums. And you have some discussion in the book about how to get the most out of a museum experience or what museums should be thinking about in terms of providing the most value to the folks who are using the museum. You know, if the goal of art is to develop aesthetic judgment, if that's how we encounter art, how can museums enhance that? And I think something you're suggesting is that museums are not really trying to do that <laughs> as much as they're trying to do some other things. So you mentioned, you know, making art more accessible. And I think your point is that, well, maybe there's some inherent inaccessibility, or at least there's some work that needs to be done in order for you to fully appreciate art. Yeah, there's been a shift in museums in the last 30 years to make them, quote, more accessible. And I think that is a, I think it's a misstep in many ways. I think it's a misunderstanding of art. I think there also, there's also a push to make them more diverse, to make exhibitions reflect their audience, to make works that are by the audience members out there, to make work that is about their experience, as opposed to letting the work just uh, speak for itself. And I think there's also a push right now that art is supposed to be about social causes. It's supposed to serve social causes. And I think that's also a huge mistake. The purpose of art is to, to be itself, and it has no other job. So once you start making art about, um, once you start focusing on the biography of the artist or the subject matter of the artist or the intent of the artist, as being more important than the finished work, you've shifted the perspective off of the work itself, which is the whole purpose of the museum, is to have the work, and onto the makers, the subject matter, the, the background behind it, the, all of these ideas that are separate from and don't matter to the work of art. Because the artwork doesn't care who made it or what the purpose was. Either it works or it doesn't. And the only way to know if it works is for us to experience it on an aesthetic level and on a personal, emotional, intellectual, all of these levels. And great art also, I think the other issue here is that it's universal. When it reaches a level of greatness, it speaks to everyone. It doesn't only speak to this particular group or this particular group, which is how, how museums are now trying to posit art, whether they want to make it about entertainment, whether they want to make it Van Gogh immersions, or they want to make it accessible and that they want to remove the stairways from the museum so that you don't feel like it's an elitist experience. I do think it is an elitist experience. And I think that in the highest, as a highest compliment, that when you, once you get to a certain point with art, 
it is a high level of experience. And that's exactly what it's there for. But all art, as I was saying earlier, is accessible to everyone. It's You've got encyclopedic museums deciding that their work doesn't speak to everyone, which is just an impossibility. You know, if they really em- embraced what they had, they would know that there's something there for everyone because we're all human beings. And that's really what it is. It's art. And then we get into the level of is, is AI art and all these other ideas that are being floated right now in the courts as well as in the art world. It, and so it gets more and more complex and the notion of diversity becomes part of the issue too and of all kinds of other issues come into play here too. And museums are trying to, I think, answer to the public in ways where they're not, where they're not giving themselves the credit and their work, the artwork the credit for doing that, the work that it can do. That's my position about where I think what the problem with museums are right now. And they'd, if they just let the work be and show great work and be stewards for great work and conservators for great work and offer it to the public, they don't need to be so involved, for instance, with some of the issues that they think are so pressing right now. Because these issues are going to leave. You know, issues come and go. And the art remains but it seems like, at least with respect to the great religious works, they were about something more than art itself. They And their intent was to improve their viewers. Yes, and certainly improve. I think some of it was meant to scare you. Some of those uh, depictions of hell in Where the Damned Go are very frightening. And they put that next to, this is where the chosen go, this is where the damned go. Do you want to be in eternal bliss or do you want to be in eternal fire? And so, yes, there's been art. Art does have a propagandistic aspect to it and has been used by people in power consistently. And all of those things are um, important aspects of and functions of art through history. Art is made by the people who won the wars, by the people who are in power traditionally, not the not the losers. So it certainly is propaganda. But then the question becomes, is it great does it transcend propaganda to become art, or is it just propaganda? And I think that too much of the work that's being created today is like socialist realism from Russia. It's propagandistic. It's pushed toward illustrative. It's, it has one, one level of importance and not much more than that. And what, you, don't have to be a, you don't have to be a practicing Christian to appreciate the glory of a cathedral, and what that experience is. If you're a practicing Christian, maybe it has a different kind of import for you. But it's where you can go into Shark Cathedral and have a transcendent experience on this planet in a way that that cathedral was meant to give, the very experience that cathedral was meant to give you. That For me, do I? there is proof in a sense of there being something more in that kind of experience or in a Titian painting or in a Matisse. Matisse once famously said that his chapel that he did in Vance, yes, it glorified God, but he said, I am God. And he wasn't being, he wasn't saying it as, it wasn't some kind of egotistical thing. He was saying that God is working, if there's a God is working through me, I am a high, I am working at the highest level of art. And if God exists, I'm the conduit for God. I am God. And this chapel is proof of that. It doesn't mean necessarily that yes, He's saying this is a proof of Jesus Christ, and this, which was what the purpose of this chapel was to. But he was saying the artist, I'm the 
it's flowing through me, and here's the creation. So do you think that the typical museum goer is squandering the value of the museum by trying to look at too many paintings too quickly? It seems very much like our art history classes on steroids, right, where very little effort goes into the appreciation of any of the individual works. I don't think that the viewers are really the problem, relatively speaking. I do think, yes, if you're going in and taking taking a photograph of the wall label and the work and then doing a selfie and moving on, then you're doing yourself and the work a disservice. My feeling is that you really have to listen to yourself and to, to what your needs are and what your tastes are and not only go to artists whose names you recognize, like a Van Gogh. Yeah, the Van Gogh in the room might be the best work on the wall, but it might be one whose colors have changed because the pigments changed, and it might be a mediocre Van Gogh, relatively speaking. And so there might be something by another artist you've never heard of in that room that is not only a better work, but may speak to you in ways that you never imagined. And so, you know, as long as viewers are open and let their egos go, and let it not be about what they think they know or what they imagine they should know and actually trust their intuition, their hearts, their guts, their minds, and go to the things that, they're, that, that speak to them. Listen a little bit. And then if it doesn't speak enough, move to something else. It's really, it all comes down to a level of honesty, basically. You have to bring it to the work. You can lie to everyone, but don't lie to yourself. You know, in front of art, you're, you are doing yourself a disservice if you lie there. Yes. You mentioned that when you're standing in front of the Great Pyramid, you experienced it as a work of art. Should we be looking at everything as a potential work of art? I mean, museums define art and say if it's in the museum, it's art. If it's not in the museum, it's not art. Is there a limit to our openness to seeing every human creation as a work of art? I think that the... Um, I mentioned Duchamp earlier that if an artist says it's art, it's art. But there was a movement in mid-century in America about trying to break down the, the boundary between art and life. And some people made whole careers out of that and still are, that everything is art. It's, it, I don't buy into that. I, or sure, it's fine if an artist wants to say that his whole life is a work of art, fine, but I don't have to engage with it. You know, not everything we do is worthy of other people's attention. And I think that an artist's responsibility is to edit him or herself and the work and to put out only what really matters and what can communicate whatever it is that the artist wants to say. I think that viewers should be questioning museums when they go there. There are a lot of reasons why artworks end up or, or exhibitions in museums that have nothing to do with the quality of the work. It could be that a board member has a collection of this crap and wants to increase the cost, the value of it. So demands that if he's going to give a wing to the museum, that they do a retrospective of this crap and this crappy artist. So that might be the reason that in some town that you get a show of crap. And I think that there are many other kinds of reasons, whether they're political or financial or whatever else, that are completely capricious, that have nothing to do with the quality of work. But that also has to do with the time in which we live, where works end up in museums for many different kinds of reasons. And it's often, I think, some of the best painters out there at times are not being shown 
because they don't fit the criteria of what's important or they haven't gone through the gallery system and ended up at the blue chip galleries that then have control, for instance, on some levels over what ends up in the museums. Or sometimes collectors have more power than museum directors because they have the money. And so they can strong arm or almost extort the museums into showing work that otherwise may not end up in a museum. So viewers need to come at it, come to museums and say, just because it's here, just because it's headlining, doesn't mean that it's worth my time. And yet that's when you bring in that, that personal subjective experience. And you don't have to know about it just because it's being shown. There are plenty of exhibitions that I pass over because I've seen a work by the artist. And sometimes I shouldn't do that because sometimes an exhibition will shift my perspective on an artist whose work I've only seen very little of. And that's the power of art, too, is that, you know, that's one of the great things about being a critic is that I've been forced to see work and engage with it that I never would have given time to otherwise because it was my job. And I've come around to artists. You know, this is the, that's the wonderful thing about art. You can hate it and then realize, hey, there's something here that I was overlooking that I didn't know. That I would never would have done the Abramovic experience if I hadn't had to, if I had agreed to speak about the work on a panel. So I was, in a sense, forced to do it against my will. All right. But I'm glad I did. So not only can critics guide us by taking us to understand works that we may not have understood, but maybe they can inspire us by example to be more open-minded and curious about art. Lance, thank you so much for joining me. The book is called The Art of Looking and also plenty of other writing in various channels, including Wall Street Journal. Appreciate you joining me. Talk again soon. Thank you, Gregory. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.